turn in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 2. We are talking about suffering. Aren't you glad you came to church on Labor Day? Woohoo! Um, specifically, we're talking about what happens when the culture and the faith diverge. You know, 100 years ago, if you had said America was a Christian nation, nobody would have batted an eye. Today, if you say that, you'll find that's a very offensive statement for a lot of people. A hundred years ago, to be a Christian was the norm, which in some case wasn't great because Christians and non-Christians looked almost identical, except one went to church and the other didn't. Today, that difference is becoming more and more distinct. There are, there are people, you don't have to, okay, I realize it's the internet, so, but you don't have to go far on the internet to find people who will say that Christianity itself is a force for evil and that Christians are themselves evil, and something needs to be done about them. Our culture and our faith are diverging, and that means we're, we're going to have issues. We're going to have problems. And this is not the first time this has happened. As I told you last week, history is replete with instances where the culture and the faith opposed each other. And wow, most of the time, the church grew like wildfire in those times. Not always, but most of the time, when the culture opposed and oppressed the faith, the faith has grown and grown and grown. And I I told you last week that the two reasons when that happens, the two reasons we see are, one is the Christians have better answers because the whole world's got the same questions. Where'd I come from? Where am I going? What matters? Why am I here? And the Christians had better lives. And so I told you about times when the the Roman Empire was persecuting the Christians and the the gladiators would come out to to kill a group of Christians and the the Christians would pray over the gladiators as they came first and and they wouldn't fight back because they wouldn't harm the men who were coming to kill them. And so you see gladiators start to embrace the faith because they're not that strong and they're not that brave. When the faith and the culture collide, that's when it, the, it, the reality of the faith is seen. And Peter is writing in one of those times. He's writing in the early 60s when the Roman Empire has realized that Christians aren't Jews. They thought up until now Christians were Jews. They didn't like Jews, but they didn't care about them because Jews kept to themselves. Jews had their own houses of worship. They had their own businesses. They had their own homes. They didn't eat with non-Jews. They didn't do business with non-Jews. They were totally separate. The Romans really don't like Jews because Jews won't worship the emperor, and that's what holds the empire together. They have, you have religious freedom in the Roman Empire. You can worship anyone you want. You just also need to worship the empire. You gotta worship the emperor as well. Jews refused to do that. Jews refused to worship the gods of the Roman Empire and that frightened the authorities because if you're not worshiping the gods, then they might get mad at us. But the Jews kept to themselves. Wow, late 50s, early 60s, the empire figures out the Christians don't stay to themselves. They're not off in their corner doing their thing. They are out in the marketplaces talking to people. They are trying to turn good Roman citizens who go to all the right religious festivals and worship the right gods and burn a pinch of incense to the the emperor like everyone else does, they're trying to turn good citizens into bad citizens. Citizens who don't worship the right gods and don't go to the right services and refuse to burn a pinch of incense to the emperor. They're trying to turn the empire inside out. And they get very nervous and they start to crack down on Christians. And you'll see that, that pattern of cyclic, oppression from the empire. This is the first time it happens in in the very early 60s. And Peter is writing, probably from Rome, a few years before the empire will kill him. 
He will be executed for being a leader of one of this, this outlawed cult known as Christians. And he's writing to Christians in modern-day Turkey and the Caucasus around the Black Sea about persecution and about suffering. So we've said Christians had better answers. That's what we're going to do on Wednesday nights on the class that future Jeff needs to worry about on the 13th when that happens. That how do we answer people? How do we, have, how do we answer people's questions? Everyone's got the same questions throughout history. How do we answer that in a way that's satisfying to them? We're going to talk about that. We're going to discuss it. We're going to role play. We're going to work through, yes, how do we do that? And then here, as we go through the book of 1 Peter, we're looking at, okay, how do we live better lives? What does it mean for us to be under persecution, for for people to, to be threatened by this faith and to think that's a terrible thing. Why are you doing that? That's a force for bad. It's, it's harmful. That's what the Romans thought about the Christians. That's what a lot of people today think about Christians. So 1 Peter chapter 1, read along with me. We're picking right up where we left off last week, starting in verse 3, and I'm going to read down to verse 12. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now, for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of far greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you don't see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets, who spoke of the grace that was to come to you, searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when they predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, when they spoke of things that have now been told to you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. So I've told you this is an ancient letter, and ancient letters follow a a, a particular format, just like our modern letters do. They don't say to and love at the end. They say from and then to, And then what we would expect in verse 3 is for him to say something nice about his recipients. That would be the normal thing you would do. You know, we have it in our letter, right? When you write an email or something, you don't just jump right into the business usually. That would be rude. You you have some chit-chat or some small talk. You would expect him to say something nice about them or to say something like, I'm so glad that I get to write you. And you'll hear Paul will do this if you think of his letters. Because your faith is known all throughout the world and you say something encouraging to the people that you're writing. And interestingly, Peter doesn't do that. That's a little odd. Peter instead instead says something about God. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Peter starts out right off the bat talking about God and what God has done. By God's mercy, God has given us these things. And you hear the things he said. You got a new birth. You got a new life. You've got hope after death. You've got resurrection. 
from the dead? Like Peter says, God has turned our whole world upside down. Now remember, he's writing to Christians who are suffering for being Christians. And we're going to get there. If you flip through your Bible and you've got headings, right? My chapter heading for chapter two says, living godly lives in a pagan society, which is exactly one of the things we're going to talk about. How do we live good lives when we're being persecuted, when we're suffering? Chapter three, suffering for doing good. Chapter four, suffering for being a Christian, right? He's going to get to the suffering part, but that's not where he starts. He doesn't start with, hey, I know you're suffering, here's what you need to do. He starts with God. In this whole first chapter that we started last week and we'll finish next week, there's one verse about suffering. All the rest, he's talking about other things. And here he starts talking about God. He says, God has given you a new birth He's given you a new life. He's given you a new hope. He's given you a share in the resurrection of the dead. He's given you a new inheritance. I mean, you've got birth, life, death, after death, the whole nine yards. Peter says, God has completely changed your life. He's given you an inheritance that can't perish, spoil, or fade. Those are really cool words. Um, Perish means to rot. It means to break down, to fall apart. Because everything in our world does that. There's nothing you can make that will last forever. We know, I mean, that's a a fundamental principle of physics, right? Minimum energy, maximum randomness. Everything is going to fall apart in this world, but not what God has prepared for you as a Christian. It will never fall apart, it will never spoil. That means it can't become defiled, it can't become bad. Think about all the things in your life that you thought were going to be great. And they weren't. You thought, oh, if only I buy this car, then I won't have those problems again. Yeah, and it didn't work out that way. If only I get this degree, if only I have this relationship, all these things in life that we think, oh, this is going to be so good, and then it's not good. Peter says, that's not going to happen. Your inheritance, it's good, and it will always stay good. It can never fade. It's, it, it, it's the word for a flower. It's what happens to a flower. Flowers, they're, they're so beautiful. You get a flower and you set it there and it's so beautiful. And then it's not. (laughs) And eventually, if like me, who gives flowers and then forgets about them, right? you will come in one day and find that they're gone and you will ask your wife, what happened to the flowers? And she will say, they were disgusting and I threw them away. They weren't disgusting when I gave them to her. They were beautiful. But everything in our world fades. And Peter says, not what God has prepared for you. What God has prepared for you will never fade. It will never fall apart. It will never become bad. It will never stop being beautiful. And he goes on to say in verse four, it's kept in heaven for you. And there's no, we don't have a way in English to translate this really well, but it's a, it, he's not saying it's being guarded right now. He's saying it as if he's standing off at the end of time, looking back on it. He's like, it, it, he'd have to say something like, it's already been kept for you. It's already there. Okay, I'm a sci-fi geek, right? Obligatory sci-fi reference. Everybody know what a stasis field is? It's a way to turn off time. So thank you, I see that hand. Uh, turn off time into something, right? So, so nothing happens. Right? It's as if God's taking your inheritance and put it in a stasis field. Nothing's ever happened. It's never going to change. It's always going to be exactly there. Paul says it as if he's, he's looking backwards 
from when we finally get there at the resurrection. He's like, oh yeah, of course it's there. Your inheritance, it's a done deal because it's God who's keeping it. All right, if you remember nothing else from this message, okay, remember this because we're going to say it over and over again. It's not you, it's God. It is not you that keeps your inheritance. Paul can't look. Paul, standing here at this point in time, they're all going to live their lives. Who knows what's going to happen? Paul can't say, oh, it's a done deal. I can see it. I know that you received that inheritance. But he can because it's God. And if God says it, then it's going to happen. If I say it, uh, you know, who knows? But if God says it, it's going to happen. And God has said it. God has said, he has already kept this for you. It's there. It is absolutely going to be there. When you rise from the dead as a follower of Christ, when we sang about it, when Jesus rises and we rise with him, boom, it's going to be there. The inheritance is absolutely kept. And he says, you are absolutely going to be there. There is no question that that inheritance will be there, and there is no question that you will be there. Verse 5, you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. By God's power, not by your power. You're not guaranteed to be there to get that inheritance because you're so powerful and you're so smart and you have so much faith and you're so good at being a Christian. It's not you. It's God. You are shielded by God's power. Nothing is going to happen to that inheritance. It's going to be there. And nothing is going to happen to you. You are going to be there because you are shielded by God and his power. Not by your own. Peter doesn't say, you will have this great inheritance if you in the blank. Peter says, you will have this great inheritance because God has already. It's not you. It's God. God has already done all of these things for you. Your inheritance will be there and you will be there because the power of God will make sure it happens. And finally, in verse six, now he gets to us. All this stuff has been praised to God. God did this. God did this. You get this because God did it. God gave this to you. Finally, in verse 6, in this, all of you, what do we do? We rejoice because this is joyful. Again, we sing about it every week. This is a gift, and it's joyous. God has done all this for you. It's not you. You don't have to keep yourself. You don't have to screw your courage to the sticking point. You don't have to convince yourself that you have enough faith. You're not shielded by anything that you do. You're shielded by God's power. And folks, God is powerful enough to shield you. God will have no trouble. I mean, I get it. I am not powerful enough to shield you. God will have no trouble shielding you until that day. Just like as, as far as Paul says, in fact, it's already happened. Your inheritance is already there. God will shield you until that day. In all this, you greatly rejoice. And now finally, we get the one half a sentence about suffering. Even though, even though, yep, right now, it's true. For a little while, you suffer grief in all kinds of trials. You know, Peter, he's not going to pretend like they're not suffering. He's not going to tell them, oh, it's all in your mind. He's not going to act like, 
Like, no, no, that's not a big deal. Again, the whole rest of the book after chapter one is gonna be about suffering and how we live in suffering. But where he starts is with God. He puts suffering in its proper place with God and what God is doing. He contrasts our suffering to what God has done for us and what God will do for us. And listen to what he says in the very next verse. In verse seven, these, all these trials, all this suffering, all these issues, all this grief in your life, these have come so that. Now seriously, don't you wanna know the end of that sentence? You are suffering, here's why. Here's what, or, or really, it's purpose. Here's what's going to happen. Here's the reason. Here's what God is doing. Now this is not the only thing scripture says about suffering. There's lots of other things, but this is absolutely true in suffering. God is always doing this, Peter says, when we suffer, these griefs, these trials, these things that have happened to you, they have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith. If you've got another translation, like nobody translates this the same because we don't have it in English. Uh, I looked up the ESV, calls it the, the trusted genuineness. The CSV calls it the proven character. The NASB calls it just the proof of your faith. In our world, Tests are very different from in their world. In our world, a test, we we think of it like school. Like, you know, Jeff, you say you can read Greek, so we'll test you, right? When I I started seminary, right, I wrote to the, the seminary folks and said, hey, I already know Greek and I already know Hebrew, right? They didn't write back to me and say, oh, great, you don't have to take those classes. They wrote back to me and said, great, you can take the final exam. You take the final exam for Greek and the final exam for Hebrew. If you pass, then you don't have to take those classes. They didn't just believe me, they tested me. I had to take the test. And I either pass the test or I fail the test. If I pass the test, I don't have to take the classes. If I fail the test, I do have to take the classes. That's how we think of testing. We're gonna prove whether it's true or not. You say you know Greek and Hebrew, so we'll test you. These guys don't have school like we have school. This is not their world. Testing for them is a metallurgy term. It's what you do to metals. In fact, when he talks about the gold being refined by fire, that word refined, it's the same word as trials. It's the same root because in their world, you test metals. The metal, when you take a hunk of gold and you put it in the fire, that doesn't make it gold. That doesn't prove it's gold. Of course, we already know it's gold. That's why we're putting it in the fire. We took it out of a gold mine. We know there's gold in there. A test gets rid of the junk. Testing is refining. It's burning off the dross. It doesn't change the gold. We don't, sell, like, you pull out a thing of gold and then you put it in the fire. When it comes out of the fire, we don't go, okay, now it's gold. It wasn't gold before now, but it's gold. It was always gold. It was always gold. The testing is to get rid of all the other junk that was going on in there. Remember, Peter says, you already have a new life. You already have faith. You already have an inheritance. You already have a share in the resurrection. God did all those things. Those things are true. We don't have to give a a test, a modern day pass-fail test. God did that. It's true. End of discussion. The testing is not to see if you have faith. 
That, that's not the way they talk in this world. That's not what those words mean. That's why we have to come up with these terms, you know, like the proven genuineness of your faith. Because we don't have something that says, you know, we took this hunk of gold and we put it in the fire and we burned off all the junk. We just left the gold. The gold was always gold. There was just lots of other junk mixed in there with it. We want to get rid of the junk and get to gold. You're not being tested to see if you have faith. When suffering comes, God isn't up there wondering, okay, well, are you going to pass the test? Gold doesn't pass a test. It's gold. I think that's why he uses it as the example. The gold is gold. The gold doesn't change in the fire. It was gold before it went in the fire. It is gold afterwards. Oh, what changes is everything else. I mean, let's face it. If you are a Christian, we have a junk to Jesus ratio in our lives, don't we? Right? You know, on good days, wow, I hope it's like one to one. There's as much Jesus in my life as there is junk. On bad days, oh, it's more like 5% Jesus and 95% junk. But, but we have this ratio in our lives between Jesus and, and junk, all the other stuff. Between, yep, I trust him, I know what scripture says, I'm gonna do it, and that's crazy, I'm gonna take this into my own hands, I don't care what the Bible says, that's nuts. Testing. Testing doesn't prove you have this. You already have this. God gave it to you. God did that. Again, it's not you, it's God. God did that. God didn't mess it up. You absolutely have faith if you are a Christian. We're changing the Jesus to junk ratio by burning out the junk. Testing gets rid of the junk. That's what Peter says God is doing. When you suffer, and again, this is not the only reason. This is not reason. This is purpose. This is not the reason you suffer. It's what God is doing with it. Because Satan has reasons for you to suffer as well, and sometimes other people have reasons they want you to suffer, and sometimes we want ourselves to suffer. But God, when God faces your suffering, this is what he does with it. God isn't wondering if you have faith. He gave it to you. He knows you have it. That is not his worry, whether you have faith or not. He's not concerned whether you're gold or not. He knows you are. He made you gold. He wants to get rid of the junk. But have you ever watched them? Like if somebody puts, you know, put, puts a hunk of gold in, in a, a crucible and puts it over the fire, what happens? It gets hot, it starts to burn, it starts to glow, and then dark things start to come to the surface. You've got this beautiful gold, and then these dark blemishes start to come to the surface, and they burn, and they're bright, and you see them refining, testing. Again, it's the same word in their language. It's the same word in their world. Refining, testing. Oh, it brings that junk to the surface so it can burn it away. Because before then, you couldn't see it. It was all hidden down in there, mixed in with all the gold. But it turned out there's tons of other stuff mixed in with that gold. The refining, the testing Oh, it brings all of those blemishes, all of that junk, everything that's not gold, brings it to the surface and burns it off. And wow, who wants that in their life? <laughs> who wants all their blemishes on display and they're flaring? 
they're, they're burning up. Everyone can see it. We, we, I, I, I cannot speak for you. I cannot read your mind. I want to stay in this little nugget that everybody looks at and says, oh, wow, look at all that gold. And who knows the reality of what's really in there? Because I polished the outside and it looks good. I don't want all those blemishes to come to the surface. I don't want all those big flares of fire that everybody can see. But God does. God wants to get rid of all that junk in our lives. That, that Jesus to junk ratio. Oh, he wants to raise the Jesus and lower the junk. And that's one of the things he's doing, Peter says. When we suffer, when we're tested, he's refining us. He's not trying to figure out if we have faith. He's not trying to figure out if we're gold. He already did that. He knows that, Peter says. He's burning away all of the junk. And I, I think, putting myself in Peter's shoes as I keep reading this, I think he gets that this is a hard concept. It's not you, it's God. It wasn't you before when you became a Christian. It's not you now as you live out your Christian life and it will not be you on the day when Jesus brings you back from the dead. It's not you, it's God. Now, we absolutely have a role to play. We'll start into that next week. But when you suffer, it's not you. It's not you that gets through it by being just screwing your courage to the sticking point. Although you very well may have to screw your courage to the sticking point. You absolutely may have to do that. But that's not why you're gonna get through it. God is at work in you, in your sufferings. And so Peter says, You know, Peter saw Jesus. This is not hypothetical for him. He talked to Jesus. He saw him come back from the dead. The guys he's writing never did. Again, they lived in modern-day Turkey and the the region around the Caucasus. They're Greeks and Romans. They weren't in Jerusalem. They don't know any of this. Peter says, you know, I get it. You, You never saw him, and you don't see him now. But you do love him. There's something going on inside of him. You believe and you are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. Wow, I wish it was expressible. I mean, there's times, aren't there times in your life when you feel like such an idiot because you're driving down the road and a song comes on or something and you have to pull over because you're crying and you can't see. And I wish I could explain to someone, I'm so grateful. I'm so grateful. I can think of all these times when it should not have gone right, and it did. I can think of all these times everything should have fallen apart, and it didn't. I'm so grateful. It's inexpressible. Peter says, yeah, that's God. Those times, again, they're not all the times. I mean, there's plenty of days when I wake up and I think, wow, this is really improbable, isn't it? I'm, I'm, it like, God became a man and died. And then there are those those moments when you know, when when it's so real and it makes such sense. And Peter says, yeah, God's not testing you to see if you have faith. He already knows you have faith. He gave you faith. He's burning out all the junk in your life so that you, you are going to eventually be nothing but gold. That's why, incidentally, what happens at the end of this? It results in praise, glory, and honor for who? Jesus. When I took those Greek and Hebrew tests, right, who got the credit for passing those tests? Me. Because I passed them. The Greek teacher didn't get credit. He didn't do anything. He just gave me the test. Why does Jesus get the credit? 
when we've been tested. Because if you take a nugget of gold and you give it to a jeweler and he crushes it and melts it and separates it and refines it and then pours it into a mold and let's say he makes a gold ring out of it. You don't look at the gold ring and go, wow, that's the most amazing gold I've ever seen. Look at what that gold used to be. Look at what that gold has transformed itself into. Who knew gold could do that? Nobody praises the gold. They praise the jeweler. They praise the guy that took it from that hunk of rock and made something beautiful out of it. That's what's going to happen to us. Jesus is going to get praised because of what he did in you through all the things that you suffered and that you endured. And yep, I think, again, Peter's like, yeah, I get it. This, this, doesn't, this is hard, right? And, and this is why you, you, have, you have love for Christ at times that doesn't make any sense, and you have joy that doesn't make any sense. And listen to this, verse 10. Even the prophets didn't understand this. The prophets, Elijah, Elisha, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, all those guys, they didn't get this. They wanted to, they tried to, they worked on it. They didn't understand this either. All they knew, it says, was that God revealed to them that someone would understand it all. Isaiah writes this in about 700 BC. Surely he took our pain and bore our sufferings, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us have turned to our own way, but the Lord has laid on him all of our sin. Did he have a clue when he wrote that? What that was going to mean? That God himself would become a man, die on a cross, Take the punishment for sin for anyone who was willing to accept it. I don't think so. But Peter says, but he knew the day would come. He knew the day would come when all this would be revealed. In fact, Peter says, even the angels don't get this. The prophets didn't understand this. The angels don't understand it. It's hard for us to hang on to now. It's not you. It's God. You didn't start this. You don't keep this going, and you're not going to finish this. It is God. What we do is rejoice. Now, don't worry. There's plenty of stuff for you to do in the coming chapters. But for the moment, this is what we have to get our minds around. That when you are suffering, you are not being tested like we test things to see if they're true. You're being tested like they test things to burn off the garbage, to get rid of of the junk so what you've got left is just gold not gold mixed with dirt and rock and all sorts of other stuff not gold that looks good but really is full of impurities but gold that is good it is pure that's what peter says we are doing and it is a struggle if if you are in this room you either are suffering right now or you will be this is a fallen, broken world. You cannot escape suffering. And Paul says if you seek to live a godly life, you will suffer. If you try and follow God, I guarantee you, it's not just that the culture is diverging from the faith. I guarantee you, you will have points of suffering in your life because you follow Christ. It will cost you. 
And Paul says, God is using all that to refine you. All those impurities you can't see, he's bringing them all to the surface so they'll burn off and be gone. And they'll be gone forever. And he's doing all that because one day the whole universe is gonna look at us and say to Jesus, wow, you started with that and ended up there? Wow. Jesus is going to get praised and honored and glorified because of all that you go through. Again, not because you're so great at going through it, the gold, the gold just sits there. The gold just sits there, gets mushed, scrunched, boiled, heated up, melted. It, there's nothing you can do about that. It's going to happen. God's going to do it. God's going to purify you. You just got to endure. So I'm going to pray for us this morning. Again, I know some of you are struggling. I know some of you are, are in suffering because you've told me. Others of you, I'm sure, am, or you're going to be. It is the nature of this fallen world. This is where we start. When Peter wants to start talking about suffering, what he starts with is God. God has done all of this. It's not you. It's God. It's not you who did this. It's not you who will get you through this. It's not you. It is the work of God and his spirit in your life. And he saved you, and he is protecting you, and he will resurrect you, and he will give you an inheritance. And so far, your job is to go along for the ride. Your job is to sit there and endure as all those impurities are brought to the surface. As all those black spots that you didn't want anybody to know about flare up in front of everyone and then are gone. So pray with me. Uh, Lord, thank you. Gosh, thank you that this is not us, it's you. Oh my gosh, if we had to do this, if we had to stand, if we had to endure, if it was all about us, thank you that this is not a test that can be failed. Thank you that you, you don't test people like that. You don't need to. You already know. This is a refining to make us more like you, to make us pure, to make us fit for your kingdom. Uh, Lord God, I readily confess, I, I don't, that is not the way I like being made fit for your kingdom. I would rather go to a Bible study and learn it all than experience it as suffering. But I know, I'm sure my brothers and sisters know, there are things in my life which have not come out from Bible study. There are sins in my life. There are attitudes. There are things in my heart that were only driven out by suffering. And I am grateful. All right, I was not grateful at the time. You and I both know that. But I am grateful today. But Jesus, we put ourselves before you. You, you our God, we your people. We put ourselves before you and say that this is hard, that we get that the prophets didn't understand this and the angels don't understand this and lots of times we don't understand this. Lord God, we pray that you would do exactly what Peter says you would do. You would shield us. You would guard us. Just as you, are making, you have made sure that our inheritance will be there, you are making sure that we will be there. Lord, hang on to us. Do not let go because you know we will let go of you over and over again. You know how fickle we are. You know that we are not patient. 
We are not strong, we do not endure. Thank you, Jesus, that it is not up to us. It is not about us. It is not us who will get us there. It is you and your power, whatever we suffer and whatever happens. However we respond, it is you and your power who will bring us safely through home. Thank you. We are so grateful, Lord. Help us to hang on to that in the midst of trials. Help us to hang on to that when things are hard. Lord, help us to remember that when you seem distant, when you don't seem to be talking to us and and everything seems to be going wrong. When, when as as Lewis says in the Scroop Tape letters, we we look out at a universe that, that seems entirely empty of you. Jesus, hang on to us. And I know that you will. You have promised that. It is not us, it is you. You will hang on to that, us. You will see us safely home. You will guard us. Help us, Lord. We want to be faithful until then. We want to suffer well. We want to do all the things that Peter's going to tell us about in this book. But wow, we want to start here. Even if we never do anything Peter tells us about in this book, your power guards us. Because it is not us, it's you. Thank you. Thank you. We are so, so grateful. Lord, we pray all of these things in your name because you are our God. Amen.